Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike Tizier, and I'm joined again today by Joe Anity. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. A little cold, but not too bad. I know. Yeah. We're suffering here in Southern California. I mean, it must be like 65 outside. Yeah, it's probably like 50-something this morning. Yeah. Bone chilling. <laughs> we, we are free. You know, we, we joke. It's nice to actually be yeah. done with a... The hundred plus degree temperatures of the summer must be very enjoying the cool. So, anyways, yeah, this little heater in here is nice, so it's helping it. So, anyways, let's jump into it. <laughs> Today we have uh, quite an awesome topic here. Um, definitely not a light one. Um, we're jumping into unconditional election as part of our series on Calvinism, and uh, so right off the bat here, let's let's jump into this question. You know, why are we beginning actually with the doctrine of unconditional election? Um, shouldn't we beginning be beginning with uh, total depravity, given it given that we're going through TULIP? Right. Yeah, we are going to go through the acronym TULIP, which is what most people think of when they think of Calvinism, right? Right. Uh, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation or, or preservation, yeah, perseverance uh, of the saints. Um, uh, but... <laughs> There's a couple of reasons why I wanted to begin with unconditional election. I think I said at the end of the last episode that we would start with total depravity. I just had forgotten that I had had this thought in my mind to start with unconditional election. But the reason that thought was in my mind uh, was, first of all, unconditional election is the first thing that happens if we're to deal with this kind of chronologically because we're talking about something that happened in eternity past. Yeah, before the foundations of the earth. Yeah, before the creation. Okay, so you know that's one reason. Also, I think we do need to make the point that everything else kind of flows from this decree of God, this purpose of God. Our salvation has its beginning there, ultimately. You know, total depravity is certainly an important thing to talk about. We'll get to it. But it speaks of our condition after the fall, you know. Uh, so unconditional election is, is the fountainhead. And so we could talk about that first. And then also the thing that really pressed me to deal with it first was in reading the Canons of Dort, um, I've mentioned them before. Uh, I guess I should refresh on that. The Canons of Dort um, are a rather extensive treatment of the doctrines of grace um, upon which the acronym TULIP is, is based. TULIP is basically a summary of, of, of the, the Canons of Dort. And um, that document begins with unconditional election, actually. Hmm. Uh, and, and so all those things together th- led me to think, well, let, let's, begin, uh, let's begin with that. Let's talk about yeah. unconditional election first. All right. Well, then let's jump into this question next. Um, What does the doctrine of unconditional election actually mean? Let's just do some good definition here. Yeah, define the term, huh? Yeah. Um, I think it's important to do that. You know, the thought occurred to me, though, that it's also good to offer just a a word of warning first and a a pastoral word. And again, one of the things that led me to think of this was what the canons of Dort do and also what um, the London Baptist Confession and Westminster Confession of Faith do when talking about the decree of God or, or unconditional election, they, they are careful to warn that this is a very important doctrine, one that should be taught, it's true, but it's also a doctrine that needs to be handled with great care by ministers of the gospel um, or by anyone who would care to speak of them because of their difficulty. It's not... Um, it's, not a, it's not an easy thing to comprehend, and if it's handled wrongly, in the wrong spirit, uh, we can really do damage with the doctrine, actually. So I'm thinking of what the first head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort says in, in uh, Article 14, for example. Um, 
uh, it has some introductory comments here concerning the importance of the doctrine and the need for the doctrine to be published, that is, to be taught because of the fact that these things are clearly taught in Scripture. So we cannot shrink back from teaching these doctrines because they're difficult. Um, right. That is what is stated, right. first of all. But it goes from there to say in the second half of the paragraph, provided it be done with reverence and the spirit of discretion and piety for the glory of God's most holy name and for enlivening and comforting his people without vainly attempting to investigate the secret ways of the Most High. I think that's beautifully most, yeah, stated. definitely. So talk about it. You can't shrink back from talking about this just because it's going to bother people maybe or because there's that potential. Sure. But check your heart. Make sure that there's a spirit of reverence, a spirit of discretion, piety, or holiness for the glory of God um, and for the purpose of enlivening and strengthening the people of God. See, it's just funny how, it's not funny, but it's interesting how this doctrine typically causes controversy when in reality the scriptures present it in order to bring comfort yeah, to God's people. Yeah, it's very know? interesting. The London Baptist Confession has a similar word of warning in uh, chapter 3, which is on God's decree, um, paragraph 7. And it says that the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise. In other words, the thing that this doctrine should produce is praise, reverence, admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, that is a consistency in the Christian life, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Wow. Isn't that beautifully stated too? This is, but but here's the thing. Even if a minister of the gospel or any Christian for that matter handles this doctrine perfectly, just imagine it, you know, he's a humble man. He's a patient man. He's careful with his words. He's not cantankerous, argumentative. Even if he handles, or she, a Christian woman talking about these things, even, even if a Christian handles these doctrines in just the right way, it still doesn't guarantee that people are going to receive them well. Right, right. Right? Yeah. I mean, people still might be bothered. Um, and so in the end, we should not shrink back from talking of these things because of this reality that people are bothered. It's true of the gospel too. People are bothered by just the basic declaration of the gospel. It doesn't mean we shouldn't yeah. preach it. Um, we just have to preach it right. Okay. So that said, how about the definition? I'm going to read it from the Canons of Dort, the first head of doctrine, Article 7. Okay? Let me put it simply, first of all, and then let me read the big paragraph-long definition. Okay? Simply put, I think we could say this. Election is God's choosing whom to save. Right? Election is God's (laughs) choosing... Whom to save. It is unconditional, the you and tulip, meaning that this choosing is not based or conditioned upon something deserving within man. Okay. And maybe one more thing needs to be said, even in this most basic definition, it happened before creation. Okay. But listen to what the canons of Dort have to say. First head of doctrine, article seven, says the same thing, but with more clarity more specificity, I guess. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God. 
whereby before the foundation of the world, that is before creation, he has out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state and uprightness into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God has decreed to give to Christ to be saved by him and effectually to call and draw them to his communion by his word and spirit, to bestow upon them true faith, justification, and sanctification, and having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and for the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. So that's a rather full definition. The confession, or excuse me, the, the, the canons of Dort here, first head of doctrine, article uh, 7, go on to list a few key scripture references in support of this, but that's a great definition. Yeah. It's pretty thorough. Yeah. And I think if you were to take the time to kind of parse it out, and what I mean by that, just break it down into little parts, uh, you would see the beauty of the statement, that it, it's a very thorough definition of the doctrine of unconditional election. But again, simply put, election is God's choosing whom to save. Mm. is unconditional, meaning that this choosing is not based or conditioned upon something deserving within man. Mm. It happened before the creation of the world. So th- this is what we're talking about here, yeah. this doctrine. Um, it's a very important one. needs to be proclaimed. I love that the the without like the yeah, unconditional part is such a comforting thing. You know this without merit, and I'm you know I'm we're gonna talk more about this later. But it's just that's it's just a beautiful thing. Anyways, well, it's a key part of what we're talking about. I think when people hear unconditional election, they usually hear election, right? And that, that of course is you know at the heart of this. But the unconditional part is very important, and we mm-hmm. will talk more about that. Yeah. Well, where does this idea come from? It's a softball question right there, right? Yep. Uh, the Bible teaches <laughs> the fact of election. And that's why we spent a couple of episodes just, uh, right, the first one, first things first, um, what was it not on what is our authority for truth? Yeah. Um, if I'm remembering rightly, uh, the Bible's our authority for truth. I would not believe these things were it not for the fact that Scripture revealed them to us. Exactly. I think this is one of those things where if it were not for special revelation, the Bible, we could not come to these conclusions by right. looking at the world around us mm-hmm. or by necessarily uh, reasoning within ourselves. I don't, I don't know if we would really come to a full understanding, I, I, I'm sure we wouldn't, Mm-mm. of this doctrine if left to just ourselves and to general revelation. But special revelation, that is the authoritative word of God, inspired by God, demands that we believe these things and confess, confess them as true. Um, I guess it'd be good to just walk through some of the key passages that teach yeah, this. absolutely. I actually have in our episode notes here a bunch of scripture references listed. I'm kind of thinking to myself it'd be unwise for us to cover every single one of them in our time together because we might be here for a while. <laughs> but let's cover some of them and make the point yeah. of go to see them. Yeah, and you, these will be linked 
you know, in the, on the website. And, uh, so you can definitely download these and check these out for yourself. In fact, we definitely recommend it again. Like Joe just said, this is everywhere in scripture. So this, this idea is a beautiful truth that is definitely evident. And we'll talk through a couple passages. I was thinking through how to structure these passages, how to arrange them. And then I, I thought, you know, what I'll do is I'll key in on a, pup, a couple of uh, key words, key, uh, Greek words, and uh, demonstrate um, this doctrine uh, from the usage of those words in, in the New Testament in particular. Uh, there's one word that we should pay attention to. It's the word eklegomai. It means uh, to make a choice of one or more possible alternatives, to choose, to select, to prefer. That's just a definition from a very standard uh, Greek lexicon or dictionary, Lonida, um, number 30.86. So, Eklegomai, it appears throughout the New Testament, but for example, it appears in Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, where we read uh, Paul. It's an introduction to his letter to the Ephesians, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. He's writing to Christians, a Christian church, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins this way, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is the Greek word, um, eklegomai, behind the word chose. So it is God, the Father, who has chosen us Christians, Paul and the Christians to whom he is writing, right? That's what the word us is referring to here. He has chosen us in him, that is in Christ. And when did this happen? Before the foundations or the foundation of the world. Uh, and what did he choose us for? So Paul specifies what it is that he chose us for. Uh, to be in Christ, obviously, but that we should be holy and blameless in, uh, before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Mm. So it really just, it, it sounds like the canons of Dort to me, right? Yeah. I, you, you get the sense that, oh, the canons of Dort there and that definition I read are just drawing upon uh, this rather straightforward uh, teaching in scripture. So the word chose, you know, is significant. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the word predestined in this passage in a minute when we come to that Greek word. Um, we see in the gospel of John, Jesus say this to his apostles, to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So he's emphasizing this to his disciples that, listen, you're with me because I chose you, you know, uh, so, so that's key. First uh, Corinthians 1, 27 through 28, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. And again, notice at the very beginning of the letter, he's not kind of tucking this away at the end or hiding it or anything. He's publishing this doctrine, <laughs> you know, uh, he's saying, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. First Corinthians one twenty-seven through twenty-eight. Uh, so God, God chose, and uh, you know, if we're paying attention, he, he's talking about the same thing that he was talking about in Ephesians one one through six. This this choosing of individuals to be in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And then the same concept is here in James two five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So um, there, there's a choosing that takes place even according to James. So I don't know, that's one word, one Greek word yeah. that we could look at. Um, also, we should pay attention to uh, the Greek word prorizo, which means, or prorizomai, which means to come to a decision beforehand, to decide beforehand, to determine ahead of time, to decide upon ahead of time, right? Um, look at Ephesians 1.11, which says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that is the Greek word prorizomai there. We have been predestined. In other words, um, God has determined ahead of time, he has decided ahead of time um, that we obtain this glorious inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. You know, Maybe the most famous instance of this word predestined is, is Romans 8, 20, comes in 8, 28 through 30, uh, where we read Paul saying, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... Everyone knows that verse, it seems. It's a very comforting verse. Uh, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, and so on and so forth. Ephesians 1, 6, we've already read it. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Um, and then it looks like I have Ephesians 1.11 there twice in my notes for some reason, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, prorizomai, okay, so. Just in the just in the few we've read, I mean, you see that keep coming back to that, to the praise of his glorious grace, the praise of his glorious grace. Well, you made the comment earlier that this doctrine is everywhere in the scriptures, and that, that's offensive to people who disagree with us. They go, I don't see it anywhere. It, it, it's everywhere. I mean, literally, Paul is yeah. just beginning many of his letters with this concept. You know, again, it's not some hidden, mysterious thing. It, it, it's just there. And I, I just, I would challenge people to consider this, that perhaps the reason you don't see it there is because you've passed over it. Um, I can relate to that. Either. I mean, I've read, that's what I did before, you know, and didn't realize it. Just kind of. I mean, God's word is rich and we, there's so much there and it is possible to read God's word a lot and yet to not see certain things because we've been conditioned to not see them. You know, our eyes and our minds go to other things emphasizing. So I'm not saying it's like, you know, a malicious thing where people, I, I, I choose not to see it. I, I just think it is possible to read through the scriptures and to so be enraptured with other concepts that pop out of the text at you because of how you've been brought up and what you've learned that you just don't, right? You, 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 yeah. you don't see... Uh, you don't see the doctrine there, but but it is there. Mm-hmm. These words, chosen and predestined, mean mean uh, mean something, and we should pay attention to them. John's gospel. We are in the middle of a sermon series uh, um, on the gospel of John right now, um, and so I, I can't help but go to that for a minute. Uh, also, those who deny the doctrine of election, I think, that those who are more Arminian in their, their thinking, 
they tend to go to John's gospel. Yeah. John three yeah. sixteen for yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only. Okay. So that's kind of their, their favorite verse. And it, it, to be honest with you, it's one of my favorite verses in all scripture too. I think it's an incredibly important verse, but it's a little bit ironic that they also don't recognize what is taught throughout John's gospel quite mm-hmm. clearly. This idea that, that God has chosen some to salvation and that salvation really depends upon God's choosing of those people. Okay, so just listen to this. In John 6, 36 through 40, this is uh, Jesus speaking. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So he's speaking to those who uh, are rejecting his word in John chapter 6. And then he says these words, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is the will of the Father? Well, it is that everyone who looks to the Son in faith will be raised on the last day. But more is said here. What is also said is that the will of the Father for the Son is that he would lose none of those given to him by the Father, and that it is only those who are given to the Son who will come to the Son. So... I think we like the last part, like verse 40. Um, we like that last part. For this is the will of the Father, everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Uh, that, that sounds a lot like John 3.16, actually, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, and that's true. That is absolutely true. But more is said. And what is said here, the, the word predestined or chosen is not used, but the language of some being given. And obviously it's implied here that some are not given. Right, they're the ones who have have seen Christ in this context and yet do not believe. You know, um, John six thirty five. Just before that, Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." So there is this genuine offer of the gospel, isn't there? Right, there's this genuine yeah. offer of the gospel. Come and eat. Come and drink. Believe. If you do, you will never thirst. And nevertheless, what is clarified here is that God has chosen some. Okay. And then John 17, 6 through 20. I don't know that I want to read the whole passage here uh, for you, but this is Jesus' prayer to the Father. And this is what he has to say to the Father near the end of his ministry. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So he makes this distinction between all peoples and those given to him out of the world. He's praying for them. Later on, it says in verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Um, that That is the emphasis here. You might think to yourself, well, he's only talking about the disciples. That's it, not us. Uh, the, the problem is, is that Jesus goes on in this high priestly prayer of his, to pray not only uh, for them, um, but for all those who would uh, come after them. Where is that in this text? Um, let's see here. 
I do not ask for these only, verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So it's true. Wow. I, I mean, wow. yeah. in its most immediate context, you know, Jesus is praying for those who are with him right there, given to him, for his disciples, for his followers. But he extends this prayer to apply to, to you and to me and who, to, to all who, who, who would live after the days of Christ, you know. Um, it, it, it's not, it, it's just not hidden. It, it's not unclear. Right. Right. Um, that this election is, uh, I mean, is you have to, real. you have to, you have to do something with it. It's definitely there. It's not, a. yeah. I know it's, if, if you weren't taught this stuff growing up, I know this is hard. I know it is. I, I experienced it myself where I wasn't really aware of these things, you know, and when I was yeah. first taught them, it, I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to go rethink some things, you know? Sure. I mean, and the implications can be hard emotionally a little bit, potentially, if, you know, if, and we'll get more into that later, but just there's different, you know, things that come with this doctrine that um, might be implied that might be hard to, to there's a mystery there that yeah. we don't really fully understand and um, the side of heaven. I, the, the thing, if you're listening to this right now and, and you're thinking, I've never heard this before and it bothers me, I would just want to encourage you that it's worth the effort to dig. Oh, yeah. And it's worth the effort to allow yourself to be transformed by the word instead of trying to transform the word. You know, um, it, 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 it's worth it. I, I think it's actually a very, very dangerous thing to do to, to hear God's word and then to resist it, to reject it. This doctrine is not a standalone doctrine that doesn't affect others. It affects everything. It affects our worldview. It affects our belief in God and salvation and man and what he's doing in the world today. It just it permeates oh, yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. And, and so you you need to put the hard work in to, to say okay maybe maybe there's something here that I haven't been thinking of correctly, you know um, that's how I would want to encourage you. Um, it, but it does need to be emphasized. Okay, here's the doctrine of unconditional of, of election. It needs to be emphasized that this election is unconditional. Yeah, that's it's, it's so important. Romans nine eleven, the whole chapter there is significant. I won't read it. It talks about election two. But it emphasizes the fact that this electing of God is, is unconditional. Talking about Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, uh, he, he elected them. So there's this emphasis that it, it wasn't that Jacob was better than Esau, so God said, I want Jacob on my team and I don't right. want Esau on my team. It's not it. It's not it, you know. Um and then that thought continues down in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You know, that's exactly what people say. Sure. They go, this that's is not fair. Yeah, exactly. That's the question. That's, the, that's right. the thought. And Paul anticipates that objection and with an exclamation mark says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, this is going to... We'll get into this more in the total depravity section. But we, when we say it's not fair, we, we are carrying with us the, the presupposition, the idea that God is obligated to do good to all. Right, that we're deserving of this forgiveness or election. Instead, right? what Paul points out is that, no, God is actually not obligated to show mercy or grace to anyone. Right. Um, and therefore he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's it's the sovereign choice of God and there's no injustice in that at all. Justice would be for God to condemn all. 
he, let me put it this way. He would not be unjust to not save any, right? but he has chosen to show compassion. But here's what I'm getting at. We'll come back to that principle later. Verse 16 specifically says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what does this all depend upon? Not on human will, that is not on human choice or exertion effort. It depends upon God who shows mercy. It's, it's unconditional. His, his, his electing purposes are not conditioned or based upon us it's anyway. Am, it's amazing because that verse covers both those things, the choice of will and the the exertion of effort or work. Well, that's that's yeah. it's very clear. It's amazing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a, is a very famous verse, but just listen to it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, by the way, if you look at the word this, in the Greek, it has to be referring to both grace and faith. Okay? Both grace and faith. The Arminian would want to say this, that this only refers to grace. And what they mean by it is, yeah, it's true, God has been gracious to you, but you are the one who produced the faith. The faith is from you as an individual. Do you get what I'm saying here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in the Greek, the way it's constructed, this is referring not to one thing or the other, but to both grace and faith. If I'm remembering right, both grace and faith are feminine. And if this were referring to one or the other, it would be feminine in order to agree with one or the other, then we would just be kind of at a loss and we wouldn't know. We which would know one? that it's referring to one or the other, but we wouldn't know which one. Right. But instead, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the this here is in the neuter, indicating that it is gathering up both of these concepts, the grace and the faith, into one thought. Anyways. Yeah, well, that's a huge, big difference. It's kind of a nuanced thing there, but I think it's interesting. And this, the grace of God and the faith that you have, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's unconditional. It's not that God said, man, Mike is just such an awesome guy. You know, look at him. Look at his faith that he just happens to have all on his own, right? And look at the works that he is doing. He's, he, he's such a spiritual man, such a religious man, such a devout man, I am going to choose him to be on my team. Not at all what we're saying. Right. Not at all. Well, I think that that last little part also reinforces that, so that no one may boast. You know, it, if, if either of those things, grace or faith, was produced by us, then we would be able to boast. So let me, let me, let me uh, um, maybe illustrate that principle just a little bit by saying this, okay? If I came to you, you're a Christian, right? If I came to you as a Christian and I said, why is it that you are saved? Why is it that you are saved? Um, how would you answer that question? Here's how I think a lot of Christians would answer the question. And it's not entirely wrong. It's just not entirely right either. I think a lot of Christians would answer that question by saying, by starting with the word I. Why are you saved? Because I believed upon Jesus. Is that a true thing? Are you saved because of the faith? Yes. But here's my point. There's more to the story. There's more that needs to be said if we're to give a full account of our salvation. What we ought to do as Christians 
is start with the word God because God showed mercy to me and gave me the gift of faith. See, the one, not that all Christians, you know, beat their chest and boast about, well, it's because I had faith, you know. I'm not saying all Christians really take that attitude with this. Right. But there is there is the potential for boasting in it. In other words, why are you saved? Well, well no one would say it this way, but I was spiritual enough to believe, whereas the guy down the street was not. That's what made the difference between me and him is I believed. Right. I figured it out, right? Right. Well, this has serious implications for, like you're saying right now, that scenario of, of, of doing missions work or reaching out of, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, I mean, think, think of being a missionary on the field. And and if, if in fact, that the person that you're ministering to, their salvation relies upon how well you explain the gospel only, um, then you would be incredibly depressed by the lack of mm-hmm. conversion maybe or yeah. or something like that. But instead we need to come with this total confidence that it is, you know, the Holy Spirit and, and God yeah. that does this work that yes, we need to make every effort to be able to present the gospel well and all that, but mm-hmm. that at, at the, in the end, it's not on our shoulders to, to change hearts. So this has huge. You're right. This has huge implications for evangelism and for world missions. Huge. Uh, it's God who saves. That doesn't mean we are irresponsible. Right. We have to be responsible to go and to make disciples of all nations. We have right. to preach the gospel. But it, yeah, it's God's work. Uh, it's God's work ultimately alone. Must we believe? Must we exercise true authentic faith? Yes, 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 yes. We must. And we must implore people to do so. Right? Mm-hmm. But when they do believe, do we say, good for you? You believed. Way to go, buddy. You know, you figured it out. No, ultimately what we say is, brother, it's good that you are believing in Christ, but you also need to realize that that faith that you have is also a gift from God. It's not It's not from in you. It's not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Don't boast mm-hmm. about it. Be humbled even more by the fact that God has been gracious to you in granting you faith to believe in Christ. Right. It's incredible. But uh, yeah, this is important stuff. Um, I have one other text here, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, which says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy call. So who saved us? It's God who saved us. Who called us? It's God who called us to a holy calling. And why did he do this? Okay. It's not because of our works, but why did he do it? Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Mm-hmm. So if I were to, let me, this is a beautiful passage, very important one, but let me build off of what you brought up, Mike, about evangelism. If I say who was the greatest missionary ever to live? I mean, I don't know if we could really answer that <laughs> for sure, but who is one of the people that you would, uh, that you would think of? Paul. Paul. Absolutely. Okay. What did Paul believe? Paul believed that the only people who would respond to the gospel that he preached in faith were the ones given to God from before the foundation of the earth. I I don't have this passage in front of me, but there's one in the book of Acts that I'm thinking about, but he talks about going from city to city and preaching the gospel, and guess what? Doing it for the sake of the elect. That's the language he uses. 
<laughs> what, what is he saying? Is I'm going to go to this city and that one, and I'm going to preach the gospel for the sake of the elect in that place. In other words, I know that as I preach it, you know, 90%, 95% might persecute me for it or, or reject me altogether, but there are going to be some, Lord willing, in each place who are called of God, chosen by God, predestined by God, mm. and it will be they who hear the gospel not just with their physical ears, but with uh, with their spiritual ears, you know, and they, and they and they see the gospel as something glorious and, and come to it. We'll get to that more when we talk about the eye in tulip that is irresistible grace. But that's how Paul, the, the greatest missionary of all time, thought about evangelism and thought about the mission work that he mm. was doing. You know, well, that's great. Yeah. This uh, this next question actually is, uh, I mean, before I say it, it's it's something that I tried to reason out in this way because when I was first presented with this doctrine, and you and I had these conversations actually, I remember in in the old office about you know about this, but you know uh, some some people talk about election or predestination, um, and this is what I used to think as if God chooses those whom He foresees choosing Him. So what do we think about this view? What do we say about this view? Because, I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's definitely a popular one. I think that view that you're expressing is, is a commonly called the foreknowledge view. And, and what it is is that people, um, they take the idea of God's omniscience, the, the word omniscience, omniscience, it, it has to do with God being all-knowing. Also the idea that God is not bound by time, you know, so it has to do also with his eternality, his omnipresence too. Right. So, so th- these things are true of God. What they do is they say, well, because God is omniscient and he's able to see all things that, you know, have happened and ever will happen with perfect clarity, uh, what, they, what they reason uh, then is this, that, that, that God chooses or predestines or choose, chose and predestined in eternity past those whom he saw come to him, you right, know? Right. So, so he saw it. So, so God looked down the corridors of time and saw that in, I don't know what it was for me, 1986 or 87 or something like that, Joe Anity as a little boy believed upon Christ. And the moment God saw that, right? Yeah. If we could speak became. in this. And then God said, I'm predestining him or I'm choosing him. Mm-hmm. That's the foreknowledge view. There's another view that's just kind of a more complicated version of it having to do with God foreseeing all possibilities and then choosing the possibility that best suited his purpose. Mm. But it's just basically just the foreknowledge view on steroids, you know, multiplied by right. infinity or something. Right. Um, what about that view? Well, first of all, I, th- I think it just needs to be said, nowhere do the scriptures teach such a, such a thing. I would just challenge someone who has that notion to go into find an instance where the, te- the, the the scriptures actually teach that with clarity. You know, you're, you're not going to find it. I think a lot of people get that view from Romans 8, 29, which uses the word foreknew in reference to God. Um, it's actually the Greek word prognosko, and it means to choose or select in advance of some other event, to choose beforehand, to select in advance. That's how Loanida, again, that common and uh, popular Greek lexicon defines it. 30.100 prognosco. It means to choose or select in advance. So it's true the scriptures use the word foreknew, but that word has to do not with God's 
omniscience, him seeing all things and then choosing in response to what he sees. But it also carries the idea of knowing someone ahead of time in an electing, predestining, selecting sort of way. That's the idea behind the word. Um, I have a note here to see the use of this word, prognosco, in 1 Peter uh, 1.20. And uh, I think it's very significant. 1 Peter 1.20 says, concerning Jesus, the Christ, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Prognosco. Concerning the Christ. So, so just pause for a moment, maybe even push pause, I guess, and just think about this for a moment. If what foreknow means, prognosco, if what it means is God looks down the corridors of time and sees what happens on its own, kind of, you know, he's not the one making it happen, but it happens, and therefore he responds to that thing, that event, that decision with uh, predestination or whatever. If that's what it means, then you also have to apply that principle to the Christ, that the Christ came, the Christ lived, the Christ died, the Christ rose again, not because God decreed it as such from eternity past or predestined it as such, but because it just happened and God said, you know, that's a good idea. I think I'll go with that. No, clearly what is being said here is that the Christ was foreknown. He was known ahead of time, um, not with God being passive in it, you know, as if it were just his bare omniscience working here. But he was known ahead of time in the decree of God, in the mind of God, in the heart of God, in the plan of God, in the will of God. God sent the Christ to accomplish this mission. You know, that's clearly the idea here. And so that needs to be paid attention to. And then one last thing. Or, or did you have something on that? Well, I was just going to say, it's not, I mean, it's also you, taking this, the, the four new thing again, this seems more of a relational knowledge as well too, right? Because we're, we're talking about shifting it from, like the, the tendency is to shift that to four new as in looking, yeah, looking down mm-hmm. and seeing what people will cho- choose. But, you know, in the passage you're about to say, I guess would be a good jump into this, but, you know, um, like who are for no foreknown are, are also predestined to those. So it's like this, this knowledge beforehand of this person that, it, you know, it's like, it has a relational. Yeah. Component it seems to, it. to be. So anyways, no, that, that's yeah. a good, that's a good point. Well, okay. So this is what you're getting at. I think is how, in what way is the, the, the language of uh, foreknowledge different than the language of predestination? Right, right, right. Well, it brings that, I, th- I think what you're saying is it brings that relational, personal kind of component to it, that it's not just that God um, predestined us by name and number or something like that, you know, right. um, but that he knew us as peoples, you know. I, I, yeah, I think I think you're right. R- Romans 8.29 is where the word is used. Um, and the, the passage goes like this, Romans 8... Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, just, just you can't hold to that 
definition of foreknowledge that I explained earlier, even in this passage. Right. This idea that it's just God's bare omniscience. Okay. Because according to that view, who did God foresee? We would have to say that he foresaw everyone, right? He looked if at we're everyone. If applying it that way, yeah, yeah. If we were applying that yeah. according to the, what is called the foreknowledge view. He foresaw everyone and within that group saw those who happened to choose him and then as in, in response to that predestined. The problem is here, it's the same group being talked about from beginning to end in this passage. Right. If we were to work backwards and ask the question, who are the ones that God foreknew? If we were to work backwards, we would have to say he, he foreknew those who are glorified, justified, called, and predestined. Mm-hmm. So to hold to that view of, of foreknowledge would actually necessitate that you be a universalist. Right. Because we have to be consistent here. A particular group of people is being spoken of. And if the group of people we have in mind with foreknowledge is everyone, God is omniscient, looks down into the corridors of time, then the same group of people has to be present at the end of this passage, namely glorified, justified and glorified. But if we notice that the foreknowledge language here is being used um, you, you know, in some way similar to the language of predestination, we realize, no, it's a particular group of people being talked about here from beginning to end. It's the same group of people, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Same group of people. This is often called an unbreakable chain. You'll notice that each concept is linked one to the next. Um, so, yeah, that's a, an interesting view, but I, I just I don't think it could be demonstrated. Um, also, li- listen, um, the, the thing about the foreknowledge view is that it really turns a lot of things on it uh, on its head. Okay. What it does is it takes God from being the one who is in control of all things and in particular salvation, and it makes man into the one who is in control. Yeah. Do you see that? Yeah. It's He's responding to us instead of... Who determines salvation could be the question we ask. According to the foreknowledge view, we'd have to say man. Man determines salvation because man acts and man chooses and man... Man does it all, and God just happens to see it, and God responds to man. Yeah. I mean, if you're a Christian and that's the way you see (laughs) God, there's we have bigger problems here than just some confusion over the doctrine of unconditional election, right? Right. Um, In fact, what we see is that God is active. In all of these passages that speak of election and speak of salvation, God is the active agent. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who predestines. And I think we should also notice that it is man who is passive. And by that, I do not mean that man has nothing to do. It is true man has to exercise faith. Man is exhorted to persevere, to do good works, to to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to work on being sanctified, though it is also God's work. You know, all of that stuff is a gift of God. Man, man does something real. I'm, I'm not denying that. But in regard to election, man is the passive one. Okay, I, I thought to myself, look at um, you want to talk about this being all over the scriptures. Okay, you're looking at it, Mike, right now. Like, I think I have 24 verse references here. I'm not going to take you through all of them. The people of God in the New Testament and the Old, we haven't even really talked about the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other thing, right? Um, are called 
the chosen or the elect. They're called, in a sense, by that name. They are the ones chosen by God. Notice that we are the elect or chosen ones. The text does not say that we are the ones who have chosen. Right. Or the right. ones who have elected God. It is that we have we are chosen, we are the elect, and that we have been chosen. We have been elected by God. It's that God is the active one. We are the passive ones in this regard. Uh, I, there's just uh, so many scripture well, you, references. You never, here. you never see an example of someone declaring like we were talking about earlier. How were you saved, or how did you, you know, you don't, you never see, or how did you come to even believe in, in Christ or on Christ? You never see someone saying, "I," anything, "I," anything. It's always God, dot dot dot. God who shows mercy. Exactly. To him alone be the glory. You know, yeah. kind of idea. But I, I, you can go through these on your own time. You could look up the the show notes if you will. Um, but you know, I'm thinking here of uh, Romans eight thirty three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's speaking of the people of God here. It is God who justifies. Who will condemn? Is how it goes on. You know, um, even in just really subtle ways. Romans sixteen thirteen at the conclusion of Paul's letter here. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Or Colossians three twelve. Put put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are all instances of, of, of the Greek word eklektos. Um, you know, it just appears time and again in the New Testament. And it's not just Paul saying this, too. You, you know, we have all these, you know. Oh, no. Several, yeah, it's so throughout got... the Gospels. Um, Peter begins his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and, and, and uh, Bithynia. Again, in, in 1 Peter 2.4. 1 Peter 2.6, 1 Peter 2.9, uh, 2 John 1, uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth. Um, and then Revelation 17.14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called the chosen, the chosen and faithful. So if this whole election thing was not true, then why, why is Christ and Paul, Peter and John inspired men as they were, uh, why are they calling us elect and chosen? Right. If what it means is something other than that we were elected or chosen by God. If what they meant to say was that we were the ones who chose God and God responded to us passively, you know, then why didn't they call us the choosing ones? <laughs> right? Yeah. The choosing ones. That would have been more appropriate. That, that would describe you. You were the ones who've chosen God. You know, ultimately, right. but that's, it, it's not what's said. So it, it is everywhere. Yeah. I don't think what you said earlier is an overstatement. It is just everywhere. We just have to pay attention to these mm -hmm. things and we have to allow our minds to be transformed by the word of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the tendency of us is to say, it's all, it's us. It's us. We, we've done it. Mm -hmm. We've chosen. Uh, I think sometimes it, and often it, it's pride that leads us to say that. But also we do have to admit that that is our experience. Yeah. That's what the side that we can see. That's the side yeah. we can see. Yeah. That's the side of the coin that we can see. Someone preached the gospel to me. Something happened in my heart and mind and I chose God. I'm not denying that. 
that that is true. You chose Jesus from the heart to believe upon him with authentic faith if you're in Christ. I get it. There's just more to the story. Yep. There's another side to the coin, and the scriptures reveal it. That, that's the point. Okay, the scriptures reveal it, so we ought to believe it. It ought to be proclaimed by pastors especially, and, and they should not shrink back from this for fear that their churches are going to shrink in size when they do proclaim it. Right. I mean, it's, it's, and it's crazy because it's such a humbling truth, but it, it, this kind of leads into this next question. It's ironic that really it kind of can get a kind of a bad rap in the sense that people assume it's, it's arrogance. So, I mean, is it arrogant to claim to be chosen by God? You know, two things come to mind, two reasons for the charge of arrogance, you know, of, of those who say, who, who, who proclaim this doctrine of election. Number one, some people who proclaim this doctrine of election are arrogant. Okay? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's There's a problem. There's definitely misrepresentation going problem. on for sure. Some people get really excited about this doctrine. They get really upset that no one's talking about it. They get frustrated with it, and they, they don't handle this doctrine with great, with great care. You know, I've labored to do so. I don't know that I've always done it well. I think early on in my early days, uh, you know, knowing these doctrines, I, I would imagine that I wasn't as gentle as I could have been with people and not as patient as I should have been, you know, and I, I chalk that up to sin. Let's just call it that first of all, but immaturity, you know, and so it doesn't help that some of the people who hold to these doctrines and are passionate about them are in fact arrogant, um, right. but that doesn't make the doctrine untrue. Okay. But what we're talking about here is more of this. When someone says I'm chosen of God, some people hear that and they go that in and of itself, even if the person is acting humbly, that even of itself, you sound arrogant. God, who are you to say that God chose you? Well, I mean, it, it, it's not hard to understand. that the, the issue here is that people aren't hearing the unconditional part right. of election. Exactly. That's, that's I'm chosen key. of God unconditionally is what we mean. And so the end result should be that it, it brings humility. We are No Calvinist is ever claiming that God chose them because they were in any way good. The, right. the whole thrust of the doctrine is to say, that we are chosen of God despite who we who we are, um, who we are. Um, you know, it, it is purely by the mercy and grace of God that we are we are in Christ. Uh, again, the, the London Baptist Confession three point seven is helpful. We read it at the beginning here, but um, that is one of the results that it mentions that this should produce um, praise. You know, instead of shaking your fist at God, saying, "How come you didn't choose everyone?" Well, I mean, how about Lord, praise you that you, the, the most holy God who created the heavens and the earth, w would show mercy to sinful creatures as, as we... It should produce praise. It should produce reverence. My goodness, Lord, if it weren't for your, your grace, gracious intervention in my life, I'd be utterly lost. Admiration of God, we should look to him um, and admire his goodness. And of humility... It should produce humility in us. There's, there's nothing in us to, that we can stand up and boast about, nothing at all. And also it should produce diligence and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So I don't know. I think this has been a good conversation. Um, if you've been confused about this doctrine before, I hope that it's brought some clarity. We would invite feedback. I guess you could email us or oh, something yeah. like that. If, if we didn't cover something or if something bothered you that you know requires some follow-up, then... Yeah, send us an email at staff at org, 
E-M-M-A-U-S-C-F.org. And I mean, or head to the website, that information's there as well. Um, but yeah, we'd love to, if you have any further questions on this, I mean, it would be a joy for us to clarify this more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed talking about this. I mean, it's been a, a beautiful like struggle and journey through this doctrine for me personally mm-hmm. and for, for my wife, Jana as well. And, um, I mean, right where we, where we are now, it's just been such a joy to see. And that's true yeah. for most of the people at Emmaus Christian fellowship. I think, Yeah, I think there are some who grew up in reformed traditions and they've heard this since they were in diapers, you know, uh, for us, it's like, this, this is a little bit, a little bit newer and it's right. kind of fresh. And I think our people are handling the doctrine well. You know, I, I've said this before, but one of the reasons I've hesitated on really teaching on this openly is because I was fearful at the beginning that we became like the hobby horse church. Sure. Because there's a lot more for us to talk about besides this doctrine, but this is certainly a central one. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, uh, and and certainly for me and for many others, this has increased our love uh, for our gracious uh, God and Savior. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, that concludes this episode of Confessing the Faith. Thank you guys for tuning in. And please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't. And that way you can be notified as soon as we release the next episode. And we'll be continuing this series on the doctrines of grace soon. It's going to be exciting. So until then, grace and peace to you as you abide in him. <laughs>